Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, is the third time a charm? We'll talk to the Green Party candidate for New York governor about what he's learned from past attempts. Plus, the Brooklyn Film Festival starts this Friday. We'll hear all about it from the executive director and a filmmaker. Hi and welcome to the show. I'm Ashley Ford, joined in the studio by producer Ross Tuttle. Hello, Ashley. Hello, Ross. How are you? I'm pretty good. Fresh back from Disneyland. I am fresh back from Disneyland, the happiest place on land. And you want to talk about it? Yes, I do want to just tell everybody, um, especially you, mm. that Disneyland should change its name to the Promised Land. I know that's what Oprah calls her property. Don't ask me how I know that. Just know that that's the case. Isn't there already a theme park in Florida? Um, yeah, but it sounds terrible. I don't want to go there. I want to go to Disneyland. Disneyland. So what else is going on in the world, Ross? You know, actually, so much is going on in the world today. It's so overwhelming. Instead of looking at real headlines, mm -hmm. I looked at Reddit Brooklyn headlines. Fantastic. And this is what I found. You want to hear? Yes, hit me with it. I saw somebody who posted, where's the best place in Brooklyn to pick up a saxophone? Mm. Do you know? I don't. I don't. Sorry, we can't help you. This is from an article. Lonesome Widow saw a new daughter in her favorite waitress at a Brooklyn diner. At first, she brought a lot of joy into my life, she said. That would not last, mm. according to the New York Times. What happened? Well, this is pretty sad. The woman got swindled out of her Canarsie home by this waitress at the diner. Oh, no. Uh, if you want to read more, go to the New York Times. It's a, quite a large article about it. Very sad. Someone else says they just booked an Airbnb around Foster and Nostrand. Not no, so yeah, far that's not so far from me. Said, yeah. Is it safe? Oh, is my neighborhood safe? Well, not for you. Well, <laughs> exactly. How about that? That was kind of the response they got from some of the Reddit respondents, mm -hmm. responders. Mm -hmm. I said, but really, as a tourist, please enlighten us. What is it with you out-of-towners having this notion that large swaths of Brooklyn and New York City are just cesspits of crime, <laughs> where you'll be robbed at every turn? And then someone said, well, the area's mostly safe. Is it nice, they ask? Fuck no. <laughs> and another one, this is a good one, bars or cafes that would be tolerant or even welcoming of a D&D &D party? Mm -hmm. Anybody know? We want to meet once every two weeks. You know, I think herbs... <laughs> off of Flatbush yeah. actually might be open to something like that. My fiance plays D&D &D twice a week with two different D&D &D groups. Uh -huh. um, Dungeons and Dragons, for those who uh -huh. don't know. Does it really need explaining? I think, you know, you never know. Mm. Okay, some okay. people are down with nerd culture. All right. <laughs> Shireen is telling us she didn't even know she thought it was a drug. Yes. Well, it Excellent. is a drug. It is a drug, Shireen. Yeah. It is a drug. Don't, oh, girl, you don't want to mess with that stuff. Yeah. Okay, and then, this was an interesting one. I had to look this up. Mm -hmm. Mammatus clouds in Sheep's Head Bay. Somebody mm. by a picture. I was like, what's a mammatus cloud? Mammatus. You know what mammatus cloud is? What is a mammatus cloud? Well, I cheated. I looked it up. It means <laughs> mammary clouds. A mammary? In Sheep's Head Bay of all places. Cloud. Wow. Yeah. yeah. They're probably mine. Yeah. Yeah. Did it look like a storm? <laughs> it did look like a storm. Excellent. Okay, and then just also so we know, so we're talking about some real news here. Last week we had the NFL Day of Racial Insensitivity. We did. Today is Starbucks Day of Racial Sensitivity Training. We're going to talk a little bit about that more tomorrow. Uh, Shireen, again, Great. was here, but before was out at a Starbucks just seeing what was going on as they closed the store down and asked all the people to leave mm -hmm. so they could have their four hours this afternoon. Oh, yeah, their four hours to fix racism in the service industry. Really looking forward to this them, you know, putting those man hours towards something worthwhile and hopefully changing the world. 
On the show today, for a third time, Howie Hawkins will be running on the Green Party line for New York governor. In 2010, he got 1.3 percent of the vote. In 2014, he got 4.9 percent of the vote. Jared Murphy will talk to him about how he'll best those numbers in a moment. Don't go away. Memorial Day is the unofficial start of summer, the period when it's okay to wear white slacks, and the annual political campaign season. Dozens of offices are in play this year, but we know the focus is going to be on the top races, like the one for governor. And we know the storylines there will primarily be about the big-name Democrats, Andrew Cuomo and Cynthia Nixon, and the Republican nominee, Marcus Molinaro. But there's simply more to it than that. Voters will have at least one other choice come November 6th. Howie Hawkins is the Green Party nominee for governor on the ballot and in our studio today. Welcome, Mr. Hawkins. Thanks for being here. Well, thanks for having me. So tell us a little about yourself. Uh, I'm a recently retired Teamster. I did that for about two decades. I did three decades before that, mostly in construction. Um, I'm originally from California. I uh, worked when I was in construction in New England, and then I moved to Syracuse. Uh, where I was unloading trucks for the last 20 years. But now I'm a free man. I got a little pension, and uh, I can campaign full-time for governor. This is my third time running for the Green Party. Five years ago, we got 5 percent, uh, about 200,000 votes, a little short, about the same number as Zephyr Teachout got in her Democratic challenge. And I think that 5 percent made Cuomo, uh, you know, we sort of was a one-two punch, Teachout then us. He said, how do I get those votes? He wants to run for president. And so he moved our way on some issues. We got the ban on fracking wells in the state. We got movement toward a $15 minimum wage. The millionaire's tax got extended. Uh, paid family leave. And most of these issues he was opposed to originally. So I think, you know, we don't have to win the office to make a difference, although we're trying to win. Mm -hmm. And uh, so our slogan this time is demand more. Uh, first of all, more means, as Ralph Nader says, we need to raise our expectations of what we expect from government. So much corruption. It's just unbelievable. And these trials are going on now, and I think that's just the tip of the iceberg. And I could, we could spend an hour here. I'll give you stories from my hometown of Syracuse, where people are getting, you know, public housing torn down, handed to a upstate SUNY medical university, uh, and then handed over to the private developer core, which is involved in all these corruption scandals. And we don't have affordable housing rebuilt on that lot. It's just weeds. And I could go on and on. So raise our expectations. Demand more reforms like we got last time. And then more than, you know, uh, piecemeal reforms, we really need system change. We need more economic democracy so that people really have the power to set the basic direction for our economy and our society. How do you describe your politics? Are you a socialist? Yeah, we say ecological socialism, and that's what I'm talking about, system change. We like to say system change, not climate change. Capitalism is a system of blind, relentless growth. It's consuming the environment. That's unsustainable. And it increases inequality. Every time we go to work, a bunch of us get part of the value we create, and the owners get the rest of it. And they get richer and richer, and we're struggling to pay our bills. So those two issues—and and the, they're both life-and-death issues. We, everybody knows about climate change, but poverty kills, too. And we know from—AP did a survey uh, a few years ago, uh, about half the—no, what is it, 80, 80 percent of the population, I believe, at some point in their life will be on public assistance, unemployed. Um, we all are going to experience that. And we know from life expectancy statistics that 
poor people die sooner. So it is a matter of life and death. So we think these are serious issues, and that's why we're for system change. And so taking a step back, people have seen Green Party on the ballot in New York State and here in the city for, for decades now. Uh, and is ecological socialism sort of the core belief of that party? When people hear Green, they think ecology, environment. Um, how would you sum up sort of the general philosophy of the party? Well, we have what we call four pillars, and this goes back to the German Greens. It was what they united around, ecology, nonviolence, grassroots democracy, and social and economic justice. And so that's what unites all Greens. But as Greens have had experience uh, in the political system and dealing with the consequences of this endless growth in capitalism uh, that's destroying the environment, more and more are moving to a position of socialism, which is an extension of democracy into the economy. So I would say the Greens are moving uh, toward an ecological socialist position. The national platform adopted a plank that uh, points in that direction uh, last year, or 2016. Now, one of the things that other third parties, if you want to call them that, do in New York State is fusion voting, where they cross-nominate. Democrat is also working families, Republicans also conservative. And they do that to wield influence, which sounds a lot like what, what the Greens want to do. They want to they push the, the kind of big guys around. Why don't you, why don't you guys do that? Uh, I think when you fuse with the Democrats, say, for the Working Families Party, you get lost in the sauce and you get taken for granted. Progressive votes are not distinguishable when it comes to the general election. The 5 percent we got was—everybody knew what we stood for, what those votes for Cuomo were for, how many were Working Families votes, how many were uh, Green uh, Democratic votes. Not so much. It's hard to tell the difference. So I think we have more power being independent. We have more leverage, because in the end, the votes on the working families line for Cuomo were for Cuomo. Do you think you draw in voters who would otherwise not vote, or just take Democrats who are on the left and feel disaffected by their party? Who's, who's voting for the Greens? Both. I mean, we have people that are totally disgusted with the two-party system and just don't want to vote for those candidates, period. And then we have uh, a lot of progressives in the Democratic Party who, dependent on the race, they sometimes vote for us and sometimes for the Democrat. And, uh, you know, our, our argument to them is, you know, vote for what you want and make the politicians come to you mm -hmm. and make your vote stand out, because it's on the green line. Um, Not—don't get, you know, taken for granted because you're just in the, the whole Democratic coalition. So, but, you know, in 2010, you got one point something percent of the vote. 2014, as you said, just about five percent. Is there a numerical goal this time? You mentioned earlier you're not necessarily running to win. Um, you don't need to win. Um, but what do you need to get to have apparently more influence than you than you've had? Well, the more votes, the more influence we have. I mean, we're going for every vote we can get, and we are making predictions. You know, the bottom line is we need 50,000 votes, so we'll have a ballot line for the next four-year election cycle. And our local candidates can run on the line without onerous petitioning requirements. And that's the way we believe we're going to build the, third, the Green Party into a major party, by electing more and more people locally. We have village mayors, town board members, school board members around upstate. Uh, hopefully, in the next step, our city councilors in the big cities, and then state assembly people and members of Congress. And I think once we have a congressional caucus, when we run a candidate for president, they won't be marginalized by the media. They'll have to pay attention to them. So it's a bottom-up approach. There's a stereotype about the Green Party, uh, and it looks a lot like you, and maybe to some extent like me. It's, it's white, it's male, it's bearded. Um, you've run for public office a couple—21 times or something. Uh, you've not been elected. 
This is your third time running for governor. Are you the best candidate to kind of take the Green Party the, to the next level, or, or is this about just maintaining your ballot position? Um, well, look, when I ran in uh, 2014, uh, two of the four candidates for statewide office were men of African descent. The other was a white woman. When I ran in 2010, we had a slate of six. Two were women of African descent, and the other uh, three were women. So it was five out of six were women. Uh, the stereotype that we are just white males with beards is not the reality. It's what people that oppose us say. And it's not the truth, so I don't worry about it. It's interesting. In the past four years, the Green Party registration in New York State has increased about four times faster than overall voter registration. Um, it's gone up about 23 percent, which is impressive. It's still a really small part of the overall pool of 12.3 million voters, about 30,000 people. There's been so much disaffection with the two-party system. Given the message, why aren't the Greens bigger than they are? People enroll in a party in New York State to vote in primaries. We don't have many primaries. We tend to meet and, you know, agree on somebody at a convention. Um, so a lot of people who are regular Green voters like to keep that Democratic enrollment so they can vote in primaries. Uh, the more important thing is the votes we get, and the most important thing is people that actively participate. And that's where we've grown a lot in the last eight years since we got the ballot line back in 2010. Uh, we've built county organizations in over a dozen counties, and uh, that's where the action really is. That's where you get the grassroots people involved from all kinds of backgrounds and bring them together so they can find their common interests and, and act on them. So you have, uh, last I checked, in, in January, your last filing, a relatively small uh, campaign war chest. It was, I think, about 76 bucks. Um, that might have been a, a statistical blip. But how do you prosecute this campaign, and what are the issues that you'll be emphasizing to try to get uh, a broader base for the party? What do you think of the top agenda items? Well, we're funded with small donations, and four years ago, we raised about $200,000, and 76 is the correct amount as of last January. Uh, there's, a, I think, we've raised about 6000 since. We just put out our first uh, fundraiser. So we'll, we'll raise money. And it's, you know, the Bernie Sanders model. My average donation in 2014 was $35. Andrew Cuomo's was $3,500. And he raised millions, but I actually had more donors than he did. Um, so we want people to, you know, give a little bit, and if a lot of people give a little bit, we'll have enough. Um, our issues are, we kind of sum it up, we call for a Green New Deal. And the culmination of the New Deal, as uh, Franklin Roosevelt articulated it in his last State of the Union address, was for a second Economic Bill of Rights, so everybody would have the right to a job or a livable income, housing, education, health care, fair markets for small farmers and businesses. And what we add to that is uh, ecological sustainability. That's why we call it a Green New Deal. And that would have been the culmination of the New Deal, and we still, you know, here we are 70 years later, and we don't have it. So that's the core of our, our program. And it's interesting that that's uh, what the uh, Poor People's Campaign is calling for right now, you know, those basic economic rights plus ecological sustainability. Uh, minus ecological sustainability, that's what the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom raised, the freedom budget that grew out of that, and Martin Luther King's Poor People's Campaign, those basic economic rights. King called it an economic bill of rights. That's what we're fighting for. That, you know, in a nutshell is what our platform is. 
given those ideas that that philosophy, you know, it's likely Andrew Cuomo will be the Democratic nominee. We know Mark Molinaro will be Republican nominee. Do you feel as though they are indistinguishable on those issues? Because the question you're going to get in November is, are you just going to play spoiler? Are you going to siphon votes from the left and, and help elect a Republican? They're not indistinguishable. There are differences between Molinaro and Cuomo. Uh, but it's a question of what you as a voter want. Do you believe if, if you are willing and able to work, you should have a job? Do you believe that we should have a single-payer public health care system that covers everybody for all medically necessary services at lower cost than we're paying now? Do you believe we need to provide affordable housing, not by wasteful tax subsidies, you know, like the low-income tax credit, which hasn't produced the housing and is very costly, and instead expand public housing, really high-quality, mixed-income, powered by clean energy, scatter site, humanly scaled, not the old projects that isolated and segregated poor people and minorities, but like they do in Europe, where it's mixed income. They're self-sustaining because the more, you know, middle-class folks pay rents that help cross-subsidize the low-income people, and the whole project is uh, fiscally sustainable. Those are the kinds of things that we're advocating. Cuomo isn't. Cuomo is part of this pay-to-play culture of corruption. It's all top-down. Trickle-down economics, which both parties practice, they give tax breaks to the rich and they're supposed to invest and it comes down to us. And it hasn't. I'm from upstate. We're still depressed. In Syracuse, where I live, when the housing market crashed, we didn't feel it because we were already ranked 100th out of 100, um, you know, metropolitan areas in the country. We didn't—our property values didn't go down. They were already rock bottom. And they haven't moved up much since then because it's still depressed. So we want a bottom-up approach, and that's what these public investments in housing, transportation, a public energy system, a public health care system, uh, will lower the cost of living and doing business uh, for the people and for the businesses in New York. And, you know, the, the right wing, like Molinaro and the Business Council, will talk about improving the business, the business climate, and they always focus on the income taxes, which they have to pay more of. I'm going to lower the property taxes by restoring revenue sharing so that the local property taxpayers aren't balancing the state budget. Uh, and the state is actually paying for the programs and mandates. We'll have to leave it there for now. But thank you very much, Howie Hawkins, uh, Green Party nominee for governor, row D. Yes. On November 6th. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. The Brooklyn Film Festival has finally come of age. Drinking age, that is. It kicks off its 21st year this Friday. And in these shitty times, per their website, they want us to appreciate good art, because art can thrive in these times. Are there 130 premieres a testament? The programmers think so, but you'll have to be the judge. To tell us about some of the selections, we have Marco Usino, the festival's executive director. Welcome to the show. Thank you. And Lillian LaSalle director of one of those premiering films, My Name is Pedro. Thanks for coming on 112BK, Lillian. Thanks for having me. Marco, bring us forward. How did the festival get started? Why did it start? Well, the festival started 21 years ago, mm -hmm. and uh, we, since then, rebranded three times. Mm -hmm. We started as the Williamsburg Brooklyn Film Festival mm -hmm. in Williamsburg. Right. One venue, mm -hmm. and... Uh, it was the idea of having just one festival, and that was it. Right. Uh, but that was not it. 
festival <laughs> continued. Then in 2002, we moved to the Brooklyn Museum mm -hmm. and became the Brooklyn International Film Festival. And then in 2010, we dropped the international and continued as mm -hmm. Brooklyn Film Festival. Name changed three times, the mission didn't. Right. So basically, it is the same festival. Um, our mission is to is discover, expose, and promote independent filmmakers and to draw worldwide attention to Brooklyn as a center for cinema. And when we started saying this 21 years ago, nobody really believed it, mm -hmm. and nobody cared. Right. And uh, now they care. Now they care. Mm -hmm. And for the first few years, actually, in every poster, you could see, you know, just a punchline saying uh, an occasion to cross the bridge. Right. You know, because uh, people didn't cross the bridge. Mm -hmm. Now, Williamsburg is what it is. Yes, it is. Brooklyn is what it is. Mm -hmm. And uh, basically, the festival is today reaching out to seven neighborhoods. Seven venues. Uh, we mostly focus on the north, William um, Brooklyn. So we have uh, venues in Dumbo, Williamsburg, Greenpoint, uh, downtown, and Bushwick. Wow! And uh, like you said, we show 130 films coming from all over. The selections are made uh, from. 2,554 films coming from 120 countries. Wow. So one of those selections is Lillian's film. Right. Lillian, talk to me about your film. Talk to me mm -hmm. about, you know, the process of maybe getting into the Brooklyn Film Festival. How did mm -hmm. that work? Um, well, the film is called My Name is Pedro. It's mm -hmm. a documentary. It's my first film. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, uh, me, me I, I actually had never intended to direct a documentary. I've never directed anything. I am a producer, and I've worked on several films as a producer. But um, I had this serendipitous moment where I was home one day reading the New York Times, and uh, on the cover of the Metropolitan section was this gentleman named Pedro Santana, mm -hmm. who at the time was— um, a middle school principal in the South Bronx. Mm -hmm. And the article w was really interesting. It was called The Principal's Office, and it was—you know, it featured him in a photograph where he's, like, long, flowing hair. Oh, yeah. And sort of dancing with his students in what looks like a party. And right. I just—I tore that article out, and I kept it. I was just so inspired by the photograph. And I thought—first mm -hmm. of all, I thought, that's not what principals look like or do. Right. At least not my—not my principal not from middle school. <laughs> exactly. Okay, Mr. Brown never danced with us. Exactly, exactly. So I just was so intrigued by him. And to make a long story short, I called the school. He— answer the phone. He agreed to meet with me the next day. And I thought I'd maybe make a narrative feature about his life. Mm -hmm. But upon meeting him, it was very clear within the first five to ten minutes that he was a, do he was a walking documentary. I knew nothing right. about making documentaries, but <laughs> I knew in that moment, this guy's a documentary, and how do we set out to wow. do that? And I asked him about it, and he said yes. And wow. then, yeah. And then getting into the Brooklyn Film Festival— yeah, I was very, very excited because I am born, raised, and based in Brooklyn. Um, Brooklyn is yep is mm -hmm. near and dear to my heart. When I tell people I was born and raised here, they you know they just are always surprised because they don't meet many people who are 
yeah, you know, no. originally from Brooklyn. It's, it's harder and harder, I think, all the time to meet people who are originally from Brooklyn. It's a really unique, I think, at this point. Yes. Even though we're in Brooklyn. Yes. Like, it just doesn't, at least for me as a transplant, it doesn't happen super often. Mm -hmm. uh, we what? always say 190 uh, ethnic groups living in Brooklyn. Yes. And so. Yes, yeah. which is so interesting and lovely, and I, I, I would guess that that lends to a greater diversity in the films Absolutely. that you guys see. Would you say that's true? Absolutely. In in the again, coming from 120 countries, the mm -hmm. films we try to when we put together the program to include as many countries as possible. But right. obviously, at least. 50% of the program is local, mm -hmm. so we are looking always constantly for filmmakers that are local and right. are talented and they can compete uh, at an international level. Absolutely, um, absolutely. Uh, one thing that she mentioned that is very important uh, because it's part of the festival is that the festival uh, mostly focuses on filmmakers at their first or second film. Mm -hmm. So we don't uh, try to push filmmakers that are already established, mm -hmm. rather, you know, discover new talent. Right, right, right. Which absolutely makes sense. Uh, what do you see happening in Brooklyn? Like, especially right now, regarding TV and film, because you've been doing this for so long. It, it, to me, it seems like you would have watched an evolution happen, right? Yeah, sure. But, well, first of all, when we moved to Brooklyn a long time ago, uh, and to Williamsburg, uh, that was a—I was uh, telling her—it was a war zone, mm -hmm. so it was a dangerous neighborhood. And right. now people actually move back to Manhattan to save money because yeah. it's so expensive. Yeah, uh, I've heard of that. So <laughs> the, everything is changing so much, and everywhere you look, they're shooting a movie. Mm -hmm. So Absolutely. Brooklyn is becoming the land of movies. You know, it's is 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 where it's, it's becoming a cinematic place. Mm -hmm. uh, there are studios, like very important studios, like right. Steiner Studios. Yes. Uh, so Absolutely. it's a great place to live and work. Mm -hmm. You don't need to go to Manhattan anymore. That is absolutely true. My fiance and I both now live and work in Brooklyn, and we love it. And we love it that it feels so much more like a community. And you're right, like there is always some art making happening, you know, at this point. And Lillian, you have obviously you made your art here in Brooklyn. <laughs> You've worked on that. You're a Brooklyn girl. Mm -hmm. What? Right now, um, for the people who are like listening to this and they're like, oh, I definitely want to see her film, mm -hmm. how do they go see it? When is it screening? Okay, so we have two screenings at the White Hotel. Oh, I love um, the White. Yeah, that, okay. that's what everyone well. always says. So <laughs> I love the White. So that's great. Yeah. Um, the first screening is on uh, is on June fifth at ten p.m. Mm -hmm. and then we have a second screening on June tenth at four thirty p.m. at the White Hotel Theater. Fantastic, fantastic. And Marco, real quickly, how long is the festival going? It's 10 days long. 10 days long. We start on a Friday and up the following Sunday. Mm -hmm. uh, the weekends are full, so we start at 2 p.m. Uh, through midnight mm -hmm. in several venues. 
And uh, while during the week uh, we just do evening shows, like uh, six, eight, and ten right. in one show, in one sc uh, screening room, six thirty, eight thirty, ten thirty in another one, etc. So you're going to have a lot of offerings this week, Absolutely. and people can go after work or Absolutely. they can go on the weekends. And films How are do shown they? twice. Every and film is shown every twice. film is shown twice, which is amazing. Good right. job. I hate it when you miss the film at the festival <laughs> and it's only shown once. Um, what website can people go to to check out the films that are available? It's Brooklyn Film Festival.org. Brooklynfilmfestival.org. Yes. Thank you both so much for being here. Thanks I can't tell you how much us. it means. Thank you. Come so back much. sometime because this is, I love talking about movies. We're going to keep doing this. And that's the show for today. Thanks for joining us. Tomorrow we'll be back to talk about some transportation issues, namely the MTA and taxi drivers in debt. Hope you can join us. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. Also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Bargi, Ariana Rosas, Naeem Van, Tyrese Hester, Kritzi Roberts, Emily Bogosian, and Sarah Grachowski. It is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. It is recorded by Eric Hagasek and Antonio M. Rosario. Our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker. And our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias.